Our Father, we are grateful. Here we are starting uh, our, our next semester. Uh, I kind of marvel as I just think about it that we're, I think we're coming up on 11 years doing this study. And uh, that's, that's remarkable. That's, that is really remarkable. I, uh, I thank you. We have some guys in here that have been with us that whole time. And then we have guys that have picked up along the way and uh, have some new guys that are with us tonight. We're, we're grateful that we can, we're grateful that we can meet. We're grateful that we can uh, study your word. Just having a conversation yesterday with a guy who ministers in Eastern Europe and um, we, we've, there, there are Christians in certain countries right now, and uh, they want to meet, but they're being tracked, and they're being fined, and they're being imprisoned, and that was good for me to hear of that, because I tend to take the freedoms we have here and just forget about them. But thank you that we can meet. Thank you that we can study your word. Uh, we, we are in process. We are on a journey and we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word, which is sufficient, which is true. It's our daily bread. Uh, we, we are grateful that it is your word. All scripture is inspired. It's breathed out by you. So we come to you again tonight and ask for wisdom for where we are in this journey of life. Some of us are younger and we're just kind of getting going. Others of us are at the midpoint and we've got different issues than we did in our 20s. Others of us are further down the trail and uh, every, every decade of life presents different issues and different challenges and things we never considered in the younger years, but now here we are. And we're not the first guys to go through this. Uh, these men in the Bible went through the exact same thing. Uh, yet the key, Lord, is to walk with you and the key is to seek your face. So we tell you tonight, as we study, that we would ask that you would instruct us, that you would teach us, that you would give us precisely what we need. Uh, we have no idea what we will face this week, this month, this year. We just don't have a clue. We can't know, but you know. And we pray, Lord, that uh, as you have been faithful in the past, we know that you will be faithful and equip us and give us exactly what we need for what we will go through this year, because every guy in here will go through something that we're not anticipating. And that's okay, because the Lord is our shepherd. You walk with us, you lead us, you guide us, uh, you, you lead us in paths of righteousness. This is how we grow, this is how we develop. So encourage us in the journey. As we start tonight, give us attentive hearts, uh, quicken our, our spirits and our minds, and and. and and, and Lord, touch our hearts. Let us know that you're with us. We're not in this by ourselves. Thank you that in this tightrope of life, we got a safety net. It's the everlasting arms that are underneath. So we're good. We're safe. We're secure. We don't have to fear. We can sleep well tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I thought we were through with David when we finished uh, right before Thanksgiving. Uh, if you weren't with us, what we did in the fall was that we were looking at the life of David, 
And we were looking at the life of David uh, through the perspective of the people that God brought into his life. We were looking at David through um, his friends, through his enemies. Um, some of the old Puritan writers like Thomas Watson have observed that there are many t tools in God's toolbox which he uses uh, to build us and mature us. You know, we come to Christ and that's spiritual birth. But uh, as exciting as it is about birth, you've got to take that infant and you've got to grow him. And, and what the Lord is, is doing in our lives, the Scripture tells us that what He wants to do is, is that He wants to conform us. <clears throat> he wants to conform you and He wants to conform me into the image of Christ. Now you stop and think about that for a minute. He wants, I, I think about that often. He wants to take me and conform me into the image of Christ. Uh, you're talking major change. You're talking major transition. Um, you know how many? Uh, do you know how many psychologists it takes to change a light bulb? Just one, but the light bulb must want to change. I personally, I like that. Uh, I don't think that did real well. Uh, light bulbs don't have to want to change, but people do. You have to be teachable to change. And the name of the game in the Christian life is not just birth. You must be born again, Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3. But you see, once you're born, then from here on out, it's growth. And if you're going to grow, it's change. And in order to change and grow, you have to be teachable. So we looked at the life of David. And one of the ways that God developed David, and one of the ways that David was conformed to the image of the Christ that was going to come, the Messiah, one of the ways that he did that in David's life was through the different people that he brought into David's life at different times, and that's true in our lives as well. But over the break, I got thinking about that study, and there's just so much in David's life that we didn't touch and we didn't tap. So here's what I want to do this, this time around. What I want to do is I want to look at David's life, but I want to look at David's life in terms of the issues that David dealt with in his life. Because the issues that David dealt with in his life are the issues that we deal with. David in his life dealt with the issue of guilt. Every guy in here deals with the issue of guilt. Um, how did he deal with that? How did he find peace over his sin? And, uh, and he sinned. He sinned deeply. He sinned significantly as we have. Uh, what about David and his fears? You know, I, I think a great part of the Christian life is just fighting off fear. I think it's constant. I think it's continual in a man's life. We are always fighting off fear. That's why throughout Scripture, you're always reading the two words, fear not. Because as we walk through life, there's always something to fear. Uh, something that you're fearing is handled. The Lord takes care of it. Great. Something else is going to pop up. Um, the, the issue of purpose. Sometimes our purpose in life is clear. Sometimes we feel that we're tracking. Sometimes we feel that we're exactly doing what the Lord wants us to do. And other times, it's like we can't find it for months and even years at a time. How do you find purpose? Because you think, well, I'm a Christian. I should know exactly what the Lord wants me to do. But we sometimes have this nagging feeling. I'm not doing what he wants me to do. I think I ought to be doing this. Or I... 
There are all kinds of issues in David's life, and what I want to do as we enter this semester is to deal with the different issues that he dealt with because they're the issues that we deal with. And the interesting thing about David is that David, there's so much information we have about his life. Uh, the accounts that are in the Old Testament about, uh, uh, and if you start even in Psalm 78, it kind of gives you an, an overview. And if you have your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 78, because it says in verse 70, it says, he also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. And if you were with us in our study, um, or even if you weren't, you probably know enough about David to know that when he was a kid, he was a shepherd boy. He took care of his dad's sheep. He was the youngest of eight brothers. Uh, he, he was not a great leader. He was just a kid out there taking care of the sheep. Um, but what did God do with him? Well, he took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes, with suckling lambs, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. God made him a pivotal king in the history of Israel. Uh, Jesus is the king of kings, but Jesus is also referred to as the son of David. David was a major, major player in the Old Testament. And we have many accounts of what went on in his life. But here's what we have, and let me finish reading this. It says in 72, So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. Now, did he always have integrity? No. But you see, that's what he desired. That's what he wished for, just as you do, just as I do. But do we always practice it? Not always. It doesn't say here he was perfect, because he wasn't perfect. But David was a guy who had a heart for God. He wanted to know the Lord. He loved the Lord. The, the bottom line, he loved the Lord. Did he always obey? No. You don't always obey, I don't always obey. He had his ups, he had his downs. But this is kind of the overview of David's life. He came out of nowhere, God put his hand on him, put him in a position of, of, of prominence, and then the whole world kind of watched this guy live his life. And uh, he had his victories and he had his defeats, just as you and I both do. Uh, David, David was a guy who was flawed. He was deeply flawed. Uh, I'm flawed. You're flawed. And, and the thing that's so great about David's life, not only do we get the stories of his life, but in Psalms, you know, there are 150 Psalms. David wrote half of them. And what's fascinating to me is to correlate some of the psalms that David wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit and correlate it with the events that we have historical accounts of in, in Samuel and in Kings and Chronicles. Because you can dovetail them and you can, and you can get kind of a, a two-dimensional idea of what was really going on. You see not only the event chronicled, but he'll open up in the psalms and tell you what's going on in his heart and his life. Why is it, why is it, that when the bottom drops out of a Christian's life, the book they head for are the Psalms. Well, it's because so much of what David went through is recorded. And, and the emotions and the, the struggle and the disappointment and the pain and the regret, he put it down under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we read it, we identify with it, and, then, and the Lord was there for him as he is for us. What I want to do tonight is I want to talk about um, 
A man and his burdens. A man and his burdens. David had some burdens. Uh, you've got burdens. Flip with me, if you would, over to Psalm 55. There are, when we talk about a burden, what we're talking about is a weight. W-E-I-G-H-T. A burden is a, is a heavy weight. And everybody has them. Over the break, uh, I was reading uh, a new biography by, uh, uh, well, I don't know who wrote it, but I can't call it to mind. Well, I'll tell you who did it. Kidd, Jason Kidd. That's not right, is it? Really didn't pay attention to the author, but I know it was about Patrick Henry. A guy named Thomas Kidd. This is a good biography on Patrick Henry. And he starts off by talking about the friendship between Patrick Henry and uh, Thomas Jefferson. Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson met. Patrick Henry was 23. Thomas Jefferson was 17. Just young guys, just out of the blocks. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was on his way to college at William and Mary College. Um, he stopped halfway at an inn. Patrick Henry was working part-time at the inn as a, uh, as a barkeeper for his father-in-law. Now, why was he doing that at the age of 23? It's not what he aspired to do. Well, he was married at 23. He had two kids. He had started two businesses that had failed. And just recently... Uh, his family home, which he had worked hard to put together, had burned to the ground. He was 23 and pretty much destitute. So to try to make ends meet, he is, uh, he's tending bar at his, at his father-in-law's inn. And one night, this young guy, Thomas Jefferson, comes in and they strike up a conversation and begin a lifelong relationship and friendship. At the age of 23... Patrick Henry, he knew nothing of his future, but I will tell you this, at the age of 23, he was, he was deeply burdened because he had tried twice to start a successful enterprise and failed both times. All he had was his home, and that had burned to the ground and was in ashes. He had a wife. He had two kids. Was he feeling the weight of life? Yeah, he was. Every guy in here is burdened. Every guy in here is carrying some kind of heavy weight. You think about it. You try to uh, escape it. You'll try to do some things that will be fun. But even in the midst of going to a ball game or watching a game or playing golf or doing something, it's such a weight and it's such a burden that even in the midst of something that you should be enjoying and relaxing you can't do it because it keeps popping up. That's a weight. That's a burden. I, I really do think it's safe to say that if we were to go through every guy's life here, if every guy could take five minutes and everybody just get completely vulnerable and just spill their guts, every guy in here would have a burden. Every guy in here would have a weight about something. By the way, it would be different for each guy. Because it, 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 could, it can be a thousand different things that burdens us. For some, it's a health issue. Some guys in here are fighting health issues. Siri, David, over the break, was just telling me right about what happened with his heart, you know, pain, all this stuff. He's thinking about that now.
For some guys, it's, it's, it's health. For some guys, it's financial. Where you were three, four years ago financially, you're not there now. You don't see how you're ever going to get that back. That's a weight. That's a burden because you're getting older. And you're not real excited about where you see this thing going. I just thought I'd share that. <laughs> and if you are, uh, good for you. But you're probably dealing with reality. And so you're burdened by that. And you go, how's this going to sort out? And how am I going to do this? And how am I going to provide for this? Uh, it could be a thousand different things. It can have to, do, have to do with your job. It can have to do with uh, uh, your wife's health, it can, a broken relationship, a wayward child. It can be a thousand different things. It's a weight. It's a burden. In Psalm 55, David talks about burdens. And here's what he says. And, we, and, and just think back, if you were with us in the study over the fall, did David carry some weights? Did David carry some burdens? Yeah, he did. Some of the burdens and weights that he carried were the result of what other people did to him. Some of the things that happened to him were just the result of circumstances of life, because everybody is hit by life. Life is not easy. Um, some of the burdens that he carried and, and some of the heavy weight in his life was the result of his own sin, his own mistakes, his own stupidity, going ahead and violating what God said not to do. And you know what's interesting? A lot of times when our difficulty and our weight and our burden is the result of our sin, what we do is we think... We think that God is against us, and we tend to think that we'll be second-class citizens, if you will, in the kingdom from here on out, and that we'll really never have God's favor again. That's a heavy burden to carry. I got an email this afternoon from a guy in another country, and that was his email. He feels like a second-class citizen because he is in a particular church that says, in order to really be used by God and really to be used by the Spirit, you've got to have this certain experience. Well, he hasn't had that experience. And he's not sure he's going to get it. And he's wondering if he ought to seek it. And until he gets it, though, he is burdened heavily. I mean, it's, his email was long, and I, I felt for the guy. He's just trying to sort this out. Because he really, quite frankly, doesn't feel completely accepted by God. He feels somewhat condemned. Before I get to Psalm 55, and I haven't forgotten it's there. See, that's a burden maybe you're not carrying, that this guy is carrying. Keep your finger in 55 of Psalms and go to Romans 8. I, I think the most crushing burden of all is the one that you've brought on yourself. Your own sin, your own foolishness. Oftentimes, guys that come to Christ later in life deal with this. They have a lot of regrets because they didn't follow Christ earlier. They knew the gospel, knew about the Lord, but didn't follow him. And because of that, they have put themselves through a lot of pain. Other people they know through a lot of pain. 
family through a lot of pain, and they've got deep regrets. And they feel, uh, quite frankly, they feel condemned, and a lot of times they condemn themselves because of how they live their lives up to a certain point. Is any of this registering? So how do you fight off that kind of burden? How do you fight off that kind of guilt? You go to the Bible and you go to the Word of God, Romans chapter 8. Watch this, verse 1. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's amazing. When you come to Christ, when you come to Christ in brokenness, when you come to Christ <laughs> with a broken and contrite spirit, and you confess your sins to him. Do you know what he does? He forgives you. He forgives you. And, and see, one of the reasons we condemn ourselves, and it's hard for us to say, what do you mean there's no condemnation? That's, that, that can't be. Yes, it can be. You say, that's unbelievable. Well, it is unbelievable, but believe it. I, I, you feel like I ought to pay for what I have done. Well, see, that's what Jesus did for you on the cross. That's what the cross is all about. He went to the cross and took your sin, and should that sin have been paid for? Do you owe something for that sin? The answer is yes, because you're guilty. Nothing is harder for me, nothing is harder for you than the reading the paper about somebody who is absolutely, clearly guilty, and they get off. That violates our sensibilities. It angers us, and it enrages us, and it should. But we really can't point a finger because we're guilty of different things. Maybe you haven't done that, but you have the capability to do it because of the condition of your heart and my heart. The heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who can know it? Can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Then you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. It is the inclination of our hearts to sin. You're not a sinner because you've sinned. You sinned because you were born a sinner. Did you get that? Those little babies are so cute when they're born. They're carrying the sin nature. You never have to sit down with your son and say, son, let me show you how to lie. You're going to get through life. You've got to know when to lie, how to lie. Let me show you some tips. You'll never have to do that with your son or daughter. Why? It's in them. It's in them. And that's why we deal with sin. Christ took our sins. And the wrath of God that should have come on us, Jesus took. That's why there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Believe that. Believe it. Read the book of Romans. Highlight the book of Romans. It'll change your life. If you're carrying that burden of guilt, if you're carrying that burden of guilt, 
you have not fully appreciated what Jesus did on the cross. But there are other burdens. Let's go back to Psalm 55. David says this, whatever your burden is, he says this, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Now contextually, what burden is David referring to here in his particular life? Um, It's an interesting psalm. I'm not going to break it down verse by verse. But I will tell you this. David is carrying a tremendous burden because of where he is contextually in his life. Uh, One commentator said that what you've got in Psalm 55 is pretty much an Old Testament description of what we would call today a panic attack. He, He is under tremendous duress. He's under tremendous pressure. When you are carrying a burden, when you are carrying a weight, what that does is, uh, and, and the longer you carry it, the more intense it becomes, and the greater the weight and the greater the pressure, and you keep looking for relief, but you can't find relief, and what happens is you reach a point where that burden threatens to absolutely crush you. Now, that's where he is in Psalm 55. It, 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 it can be a burden over what you did in your past, I wish I hadn't have done this. I wish I had known this. But you see, it, it could be a vast burden of regret. I wish I could get those years back. Yeah, but you can't. They're already done. It could be a thousand different things. Look at verse 1. Give ear to my prayer, O God. Do not hide yourself from my supplication. And understand the emotion that's in these words. This is not some formal prayer that... Um, is being prayed in a church that has a lot of ritual. You know what I mean? You ever been in a church where they're real big on ritual? And, 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 and even, um, how, do I sound, how do I say this without criticizing? I can't, so allow me to criticize. <laughs> you ever seen a funeral service, been to a funeral service, and it seems like the guy up there leading the service is absolutely disconnected. He's bored. I did a funeral one time. I was just a young pastor. I did a funeral in a church where they would never invite me to preach. But the girl who had been raised in that church had come to know the Lord and was attending our church. And it was kind of interesting, but I wound up doing this funeral in this church where the guy who was leading the church, I don't think, knew Christ. He didn't like me, he didn't like what I stood for, he didn't like what I said. And I have to tell you something, I grieve for the family, and any family, that he would come in and conduct a funeral service. Because it was like he was reciting the multiplication tables. Three times three is nine. Four times three is sixteen. Just checking to see if you're with me. I'm worried about some of you guys tonight. A lot of ADD in this room. Is that what they call it? ADD? Okay. I'm so distracted, I don't even know what you call the thing. That's, that's how it works. But you, you know what I'm talking about? Just formal, just ritual, no heart, no gut. That's not here. This is from the heart, this is from the gut. This guy's in trouble. He's crying, give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. I I can't afford for you to hide from me. I need you to hear me. 
This is a gut prayer. Give heed to me and answer me. I'm restless in my complaint. I'm surely distracted. When you're burdened and that weight just stays on you, is it not true you get distracted? It distracts you from living life and you get worn out from this burden and from this weight. My gosh, it's just killing me. And it's hard to do your work because it's pulling all your emotional energy. It gets more specific. Because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. So now we're getting more specific to what his burden is. David always had these enemies around him. For years they were pursuing him. If you remember Saul pursuing him. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, he gets into the description of what we call a panic attack. Verse 4. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. That's what happens when you have a panic attack. There can be a physiological reaction when you panic. You can literally begin to tremble. Some people begin to shake. Sweat. You see? And what happens when you, when you panic? Well, he says in verse 5, horror has overwhelmed me. I can't keep this weight. I can't bear this weight. I can't keep dealing with this. Watch, watch six. This is what you call, he wants to escape. This is what we do. Oh, that I had wings like a dove. Is that what you say when you're under stress? Probably not. Oh, that I had a case of Bud Light, is what a lot of guys say. Oh, that I could go find some cocaine. There are all kinds of escape mechanisms, aren't there? Oh, that I could go build a house for 29 years and find happiness. Oh, that I could do this or do this. We're always looking to escape because of the stress, because of the weight, because the burden is so great. Here's what he says. I wish I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. See, we just want some peace. When you're that heavily burdened, whatever your burden is, might be a bad marriage and it's been bad since the day you got married. And it just weighs on you. It just weighs on you and you don't have much hope that it's going to change. Some guys in here have that. By the way, you stay. Don't you leave. You stay. Because you said better or worse. You may want to find another Bible study next week. But see, that's what God says. Marriage is permanent. Marriage is a lifelong covenant. Till death do you part. And I'd like to go find somebody else. Yeah, the problem is you've got to take you with you. Right? If you're in a certain situation, you stay. As we've said in here before, you stay and learn the lessons. You never know what God will do. You just, you just don't know. So where does God have you today? You just stay, be faithful, be obedient. Not everyone has that kind of situation. That may be your weight, that may be your burden. You're getting the sense that this guy's in trouble and he's got a heavy weight. Are you there with me? Are you starting to pick this up? Because I can't break down this whole song. I want to jump to verse 12 because he gets real specific as to what his weight is and his burden. He says, it, it is not an enemy who reproaches me, <clears throat> then I could bear it. 
It is not one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. Now watch this. It is you, a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. Now that's interesting. You see what his weight is? You see what the burden of his life is right now? He's been betrayed by a very, very, very close friend. I'll tell you, if you have ever experienced betrayal by someone who's close to you, it rips your guts out. And what that tends to do is it tends to put you in a situation where you're not ever going to trust anybody ever again. That's where he is. Now, what is this all about? Uh, If it was an enemy or who reproached me, I could bear it. But no, it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. In our study in the fall, we studied a man by the name of Ahithophel. Ahithophel was a wise, wise statesman and counselor of Israel, a man of great wisdom. He counseled David. He had been a lifelong friend of David, most scholars believe. But at a certain point, when David's son Absalom rose up against his father in a, in a coup to take the throne from David and literally drove his father out of Jerusalem, and David was running for his life, what had happened was that Absalom, his close friend and counselor, had gone to, Absal- had gone to Absalom and joined forces with his son. You remember the study we did. Um, it's very, very possible this is a reference to Ahithophel. And, and, and that whole situation where Ahithophel betrayed David. But this gets kind of complex because as we found out in that study, the question would be why after a lifelong friendship would Ahithophel go and betray David and support his son who was in rebellion against him? Well, we found out some things. And one of the things we found out is that Ahithophel was the grandfather of a young woman by the name of Bathsheba. Bathsheba's grandfather was Ahithophel. And so what was it that occurred on that roof that night when David looked out and he saw her getting in the bed? Well, you know the whole story. That was Ahithophel's little granddaughter who had grown up to a beautiful woman. David saw her, lusted after her, brought her in, slept with her. She got pregnant. As a result, David brings in her husband, Uriah the Hittite, has to set him up so that he dies. He becomes a murderer. That was David's great, great sin. And then later, when the rebellion occurs, one of the things that Ahithophel counsels Absalom to do is as David is fleeing the city is to take David's concubines and have sexual intercourse with them publicly on the roof to humiliate his father. The question would be, why would he give such counsel? Because it was on the roof that he committed adultery with Bathsheba. It was payback. This is an interesting, if indeed this is the case, and it appears to be, this is interesting that David is carrying this burden, and I'll tell you why it's interesting. It's interesting because was he betrayed? Yes. But you see, (coughs) there was good reason he was betrayed. 
You see, he just couldn't blame Ahithophel because he was the cause of the grief that accrued into Ahithophel's life in the first place. This, this is where, guys, life gets so complex. This, this is where, at times, we, we, we baffle ourselves. Um, and this is where the enemy takes opportunity so often in our lives to just drive us into the ground because even after we come to Christ and we receive forgiveness and we begin the process of spiritual growth, uh, we, don't, we don't have instantaneous microwave spiritual maturity, do we? We have our ups, our downs, we have our fails, we have our failures. Flip over to Romans chapter 7 real quick, if you would. We've already been in Romans 8. But see, you got other chapters in Romans besides Romans 8. It's an entire book. And the beauty of Romans 8.1 is its position in the book. It comes right after Romans 7. I know that's uh, a revelation to you. But what I mean by that is the content of Romans chapter 7. See if you uh, might identify with Paul's words in Romans chapter 7, uh, beginning with uh, verse 15. He says, For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Even after you come to Christ, sin still lives within you, you see. And so there is a process where we must learn not to feed sin, but to kill it. But you don't learn it overnight. You don't learn it at a weekend seminar. It takes your whole life. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Every guy in this room relates to this. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. That's why in 23, I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. He's doing what he doesn't want to do. Now the enemy will come in and just make mincemeat out of you on this. How can you call yourself a Christian? You did this. You should have been over this 20 years ago. You're still dealing with it. You're still fighting this. You ever deal with this? That's why you don't stop in Romans 7. You've got to go on to Romans 8.1. There is therefore now, what? No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You can't pull this off by yourself. So Jesus did it for us. And we keep coming back. To Christ. You say, I can't come back again and ask forgiveness. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you actually can. Yeah, you can. Because it's amazing, guys. That's something we all deal with. That's a weight all of us as men have got to deal with. But there are other weights. Now, let's go back to Psalm 55. 
I want to show you something in this text. Are you guys with me? Am I losing you tonight? I've been out of the saddle for seven, eight weeks. And so have you. I just want to make sure we're on the same page here. Um, Verse 22 is a very interesting verse. And I use the New American Standard Bible, and one of the reasons I use that translation is that it's very true to the Greek and Hebrew. And in the margin, you will have, in italics from time to time, you will have um, an alternative translation. It is a very rough, not real smooth grammatically perhaps, but it's what I call a rough-hewn um, literal, unsanded, unvarnished translation of the gut that is intended. And in the margin of 22 of, Rome, of, of Psalm 55, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. Here's what it says. Cast what he has given you upon the Lord and he will sustain you. That's interesting, isn't it? So what does that mean? The burden that you're carrying? I'll tell you what it means. The burden, the weight that you're carrying? Where did that come from? You say, well, in my situation, it came from me. Well, it may have come from you, but God knew about it before it happened. Cast what he has given you upon the Lord. You see, a burden can be a suffering A burden can be an ordeal, a burden can be a trial, a burden can be a weight. Um, Now follow me here. Did Job know anything about suffering? He knew quite a bit about suffering and it came quickly. You say, yeah, Satan afflicted Job. Yes, he did. But let me ask you a question. Where did Satan have to go before he could afflict Job? He had to go to God, and he had to get permission, and God had to sign off. Ultimately, what Job went through and the suffering that Job went through came from the Lord. Now, God is never the author of evil. But you see, if you look carefully at the opening chapters of Job, what was happening is there was an accusation that the only reason that Job loves you is because you blessed him beyond measure. Anybody would love you with that kind of blessing. He doesn't really love you. So Job unknowingly was being put to the test and God signed off on the affliction that Job encountered. Job even says it in Job chapter 1. Job says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He didn't say the Lord gives and Satan takes away. He says the Lord gives and what? The Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Then you go to the next chapter, and now he's got boils from head to toe. And he says to his wife, who is bitter against God, he says to his wife, shall we accept prosperity from God and not adversity? Here is the deal. Job understood that in his life, God was absolutely sovereign over all things and all events in his life. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Here's what what I'm trying to do at this point. 
in, in, 520, in 55.22, he says, cast what he has given you upon the Lord. There is a point in the Christian life where we cannot be children anymore. We have to become mature men and adults. And the only way you become a mature man is to understand the Word of God. One of the things that I was thinking about when we were driving down that bus from Hearst Castle, a lot of things are going through my mind. Here's a guy that spent his whole life trying to have fun, material goods, all this stuff. I mean, he had so much stuff in there, they couldn't count it. There's a famous story about Hearst that he was looking for a particular tapestry. And he had warehouses in Europe, he had warehouses in New York, he had them in L.A. He had full-time guys in Europe scouring castles for pieces of art. He was looking for a particular tapestry. He was looking for this for years and years and years and couldn't track it down. After he died, they found it in his warehouse in L.A. But he had so much stuff, he didn't know what to do with it. That's a funny story, but it's a tragedy. And one of the things that I was thinking about as I was driving down that hill in that bus with Mary, thinking about everything I just saw, Jeremiah 9 came to my mind. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his power. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he knows me and understands me. There you go. The key to living life, the key to living life and the key to taking on life and the key to absorbing the blows of life and the weights of life and the stresses of life, by the way, which the Christian life is full of. Do you know that? Whenever you hear somebody saying on television, ah, help us, Lord, here. Whenever you hear this nonsense that your life is supposed to be easy, run. Don't sow seed into their ministry. Keep seed out of their ministry. <laughs> Don't help them buy another jet. Those guys are false teachers. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Acts 14, 22. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Not some, not few, many. And the older you get, the more you're going to have. Because you're more mature in Christ, and you've got broader shoulders than you did when you were six months old in Christ. I'm just here to encourage you. <laughs> but it's true. <clears throat> it has been granted to you, Philippians 1.29, not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. So how do you handle that? How in the world do you handle that? Let not, not the, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Not let the powerful man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me. The only way you know and understand God is in this book. And when you read this book, you find out some things about God. You find out that he is sovereign, that he is in control, that he is in charge of every event of your life, good, bad, uh, a blessing and evil he's in charge of it all because he is a sovereign God 
the world in your life is not out of control, it's under control. Ephesians 1, verse 11. But we got to take a running start at it. And I'm going to tell you right up front, there's going to be some stuff in here that some of you guys aren't going to like. But you need to learn to like it and you need to love it. Where's Ephesians? It's right back here. Thank you. I was going left. Uh, let's read Ephesians 1.3. And we'll make our way down to 11. This is great stuff. This is your foundation. A lot of bad soil in Texas. Nolan Ryan would say soil. I can't even say it the way he does in those commercials. It's soil, S-O-I-L, not soil. And so we have foundation issues in Texas. In the Christian life, you've got to get your foundation straightened out. And a lot of us grew up in churches that gave us the gospel, but they, they didn't give us much else, so we don't have much of a foundation on the greatness and sovereignty and majesty of God. We think God's like us. He's not like us. He's God. Well, it's on me. It's not on you. It's on Jesus. Watch this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. We already lost some of you guys. You already checked out. Because you saw that word predestination. I don't think I buy that. Well, you better buy it. Isn't it say it? Well, I have a real problem with that. Well, get over it. You can't go to heaven without predestination. We're always walking around on ice, like we're walking on thin ice. Well, we... You know why you're a Christian? He chose you before you were born. That's the only reason. He chose you. He had a plan. That's what predestination means. That's what it means. Sorry. But there's nothing to be sorry about because that's your foundation. It has not a thing to do with you. He chose you. We love him because he loved us first. Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me. We're telling everybody, you choose him, you choose him, you choose him. And there's, yes, we hear the gospel and we respond. But ultimately, we choose him because he chose us. Right? Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go forth and bear fruit and that your fruit might remain. And it's just not true of his disciples. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. If he hadn't chosen us, if he hadn't elected us, nobody would be holy and blameless because we're all sinners. So he plucked us out. Well, why did he pluck me out? Grace. My, my friend, Jose, who does some work and we... He'll do some work for me, and I'll let him use my barn, and we go back and forth. Jose showed up with two goats that somebody had given him about Thanksgiving. He said, can I put these goats in the outside pen? I said, why? He said, well, we're going to eat one for Christmas, maybe eat two. I said, really? He goes, yeah, we dig a pit, and we're going to do this and have our big pen. I said, sure, that's fine. And then a few weeks later, we're talking about, so when are you going to do this goat thing? And he said, well, I'm not sure I'm going to do both. I might just do one. 
And so we went off to California for Christmas Eve and came back. When I left, there were two goats. When I got back late at night, the next morning I went down there and there was one goat. Jose chose one and he didn't choose the other. We do that all the time. If we do it, why can't God do it? And see, his motives are pure and he's perfect. And you say, I have a real problem with that. Well, then you don't know the goodness of God. I'm not saying these things aren't easy. I'm not saying they're easy. I'm saying they're here and you can't ignore them. And I'm saying when you get a grip on them, it makes you praise him and you're overwhelmed by his grace. It says in love... He predestined us. I'm in five. It just means that God has a plan for your life. Aren't you glad to know that God has a plan for your life? Because every plan you make gets screwed up, does it not? Everything I plan, it always gets screwed up. Not not, not everything, but you know what I mean. When you're young, you have all these grandiose plans. You fail. We're all Patrick Henry. We've all failed. And then what does God do? He comes in, picks up the rubble from our screw-ups, and what do you do? He resurrects it. Now let me show you how to go here. And then he blesses us. Right? Aren't you glad he does? Okay. In him, I'm in seven. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will. And it's a mystery. I grant you it's a mystery. According to the kind intention which he purposed in him. Look down at verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, watch this, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. He doesn't work some things. He works all things. And if God works all things, Joseph had some bad things happen to him, did he not? His brothers did some horrific things to him. His brothers did some things to him that were evil. And later in life, Joseph looked at his brothers and said, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. How could Joseph say that? Because he works all things after the counsel of his will. Okay. You have to get that under you, man. And I'm not saying there are some hard things here. So this hangs me up. God has a plan, predestination, and my will. Well, it hangs everybody up. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. That God predestines and yet that man is responsible are two facts that few can see clearly. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. The fault is in our weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. If then I find taught in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained, that is true. And I find that in another scripture that man is responsible for all his actions, that is also true. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine that these two truths can ever contradict each other. I do not believe they can ever be welded into one upon any anvil on earth, but they can certainly and they shall be certainly one in eternity. They are two lines that so nearly parallel that the human mind which pursues them farthest will never discover that they converge, but they do converge. And they meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God, from whence all truth doth spring. They're both true. We just can't figure it out. But don't minimize one. Don't minimize the other. Take them both. Take them both. Now let's say this. 
Here's, here's what I want to say to you. As a believer, when you have a burden, when you have a heavy weight, what did, what did David say? <laughs> Cast what he has given you upon him. Ultimately, the burden, God's not shocked by it. God's not stunned by it. Flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, very quickly. Uh, we're sprinting towards the finish line now, guys. First Thessalonians, as I called it when I was in junior high school, First Ministronians, but that wasn't right. Chapter 3, First Thessalonians, verse 1. Therefore, when we can endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. Paul says, we sent Timothy, our brother, God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Watch this. Why did he send Timothy? So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. They were afflicted. They were having burdens and weights. They were being persecuted. They didn't understand why. That no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. Watch this. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. It was part of God's plan that they struggled. It was part of God's plan that they have adversity. It was part of God's plan that they be persecuted. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. Then he goes on and he says, I want to make sure that the tempter doesn't miss you up, and you forget that God is in charge of all things. So, how does this work in life? So the night of the December 3rd, we're putting up our Christmas tree. Um, I actually put it together. Um, I'd done my job, and Mary was putting everything on it. And I was watching her and supporting her as we watched an old movie. And uh, then one of the kids called in. So we're up later than we normally are, and I'm looking for something here. And at, uh, what night was that? Give me a second here. So, we're up later than we normally are. About 11.30, 11.35. Finally, we're heading off to bed. I'm just walking in the bedroom, and I heard that ping on my phone. I had a text. I thought, who's texting me at this time of night? I go get my phone. It's from Jeff Scruggs, who normally sits up there in the balcony with his buddies, who come every week. He's not here tonight. I read this text. Steve, please pray for, 1137, please pray for Lauren in a bad accident at Parkland, airplane prop. I'm going, airplane prop? What is this? So I call, Jeff, what, what is this? And you've heard the story now about this beautiful, beautiful girl, Lauren Scruggs, 23 years old, flying in the plane, getting out in McKinney. Still don't know what happened. Walks into the airplane propeller. That's uh, their daughter. Mary and I throw on her clothes. We head down to Parkland. And Jeff and Cheryl have a great ministry. They, they have great friends, a lot of people there. And so we spend the next four or five hours with them. And Lauren's in surgery. They don't know if she's going to live. You don't walk into an airplane propeller and live. So there's tremendous. You, you talk about burden. You talk about weight. 
And we're all just sitting there, and nobody knows what to say or do. You're just there. And uh, one by one, the team of doctors come out because they're having to do multiple surgeries because that propeller hit, hit right here, hit through the head, the skull, the brain, uh, down through, severed all the shoulder muscles, cut off her hand. Uh, And so the first doctor comes out, and he is giving an overview. Here's how we're going to handle this, because it's going to require multiple surgeries tonight. And he just explained everything. He said, right now, the uh, neurologists are in there trying to get pressure off the brain. We're, our biggest concern right now is infection, because of the, the oil and the gas and everything was on the propeller. And he told us the stages. Hour and a half, maybe. Three neurologists come out, give a report. These guys, these guys were impressive. I got to say, I've never seen doctors handle a family as good as I saw every group of doctors that came out that night. I really mean that. The three neurologists come out and they say to Jeff and Cheryl, um, "We've been working to relieve pressure from the brain. The skull, the propeller hit the skull." drove a portion into the brain where it was embedded, the bone. That was actually a favorable occurrence because it gave us a quick pathway into the brain to relieve the swelling and the pressure. They didn't say blessing, but that's what it was. That was a blessing, and we were able to get in there. Um, so now, let me think about this. So now what's being done, and they, they gave them, you know, talked about as best they could what they did. Um, and the surgeon in there now is working to try to save the eye. About an hour and a half later, two hours later, he comes out. We can't save the eye. Um, she's going to lose her eye, that left eye. Uh, she'd already lost her hand. And you can just imagine, I mean, Jeff and Cheryl, you just, and all of us, we're just, you know, you're just in a, your stomach's in a knot. Um, and these doctors are coming through, and at a certain point, we're sitting there, and at a certain point, the four of us and all the friends are all around, and everyone's just pondering, trying to take this in and praying. And Cheryl looked over at me, and she said, Steve, God knew this was going to happen, didn't he? And I said, yeah, he did. And she said, he could have prevented it from happening, and he didn't, did he? And I said, no, he didn't. And she said, he has a purpose in this for Lauren, doesn't he? I said, he does. And she said, and we don't know what it is. And I said, we don't. Now, the reason I bring that up is, see, Jeff and Cheryl believe everything that we've been talking about tonight, about the sovereignty of God. They believe that God has control of all things. And he does in the good and the bad. 
What, what I'm trying to say to you, what they believed about God at the worst moment in their lives was the foundation that held them together in the greatest tragedy of their lives. See, that's why it's important what you believe about God. Cast what he has given you upon him. He cares for you. Andre Sue is a woman who writes a column in World Magazine. And in her column, she was talking about the anxiety and the fears and the worry of life and talking about her own experience with it and three questions that she tries to ask herself in the most difficult situations when anxiety overrules and the burden and the heaviness of the burden gets so overwhelming. She offers three questions. Number one, she says, we need to ask God these three questions. Lord, are you in control of the universe or aren't you? Secondly, Lord, do you really love me? Third, Lord, will you really take care of me? And then she says this later on in the article. When these overwhelming times of anxiety and your burden beyond your capacity to handle it, she offers this. Go into your room, shut the door, and confess that you have taken control of your life and forgotten that God is in control. Be specific, naming times you can remember. Renounce the enemy. Ask for forgiveness. Verbally receive forgiveness. Picture God's hands extended and cupped, just like the Allstate Insurance logo. Put everything you've been worrying about into his hands. Your kids, your mother-in-law, your regrets, your thinning hair. Release it all to God. He loves you. He will take care of you. Then, then swap the stressing for thanksgiving the rest of your day. That night, a few hours later, we're sitting there, and once again, we're in a state of shock. And at one point, it was either Jeff or Cheryl who looked over at me and said, Steve, what are you thinking? And I really didn't want to tell him. And he said, well, I hesitate to tell you. They said, go ahead and tell us. I said, I'm thinking that we ought to be sitting here planning a funeral service. And we're not. That girl should be dead and she's alive in there. I'm also thinking that she's lost one eye, but she still has a good eye. I'm thinking that she lost one hand, but she has another hand. And I thank God for that. Now, I'm going to tell you the mind blower. We were down back and forth at the hospital, and about two weeks later, Cheryl called Mary and said, hey, why don't you come down tonight and watch the Cowboys game with us? And I got to tell you, that didn't sit right with me. We hadn't been down there in about a week or eight days. And Mary said, well, we'll bring dinner, but we don't need to stick around. No, we're going to watch the game. And, um, and I thought, watch the game. This just... Anyway, it just didn't sit right. I mean, here's this. And she was recovering, but 
it just didn't, it didn't sync with me. We walk in, and there, she has a room, and then there's an adjoining room for the parents, and it's open. It's like a two-bedroom deal. And we walk in. This is maybe two weeks, two and a half weeks later. Warren, see, the last time I saw her, she was in intensive care. I walk in with Mary, and I look at the bed, and the bed's empty, and Lauren's sitting in a chair in her sweats, and she's texting. <laughs> and she looks and stuff and says, Hi, Mary. Hi, Steve. Thanks for coming down. What did you bring for dinner? I was shocked. Praise God. And we talked, and we watched the Cowboys game. And then she got a little tired and got into bed. And I'm sitting on this couch, and her bed's right over there, and the game's here, and we're eating salmon and brown rice and uh, something else. And I keep looking at her. I just keep looking at her. Because she shouldn't be there. Cast what he has given you upon him. I'm not saying she doesn't have a hard road ahead of her. She does. But I'm saying God has a plan for her life and they knew it and it's undergirding them through everything they're going through. I've said this before and I'll close with this and I'm sorry I've gone so long. The Christian life is hard and we are not exempt from hard things. And here's what happens. When you carry a weight and burden, when you carry a weight and burden and, and what happens is you begin to project out, well, how long is this going to be and how is this going to sort out? Well, how am I going to deal with this and how am I going to deal with this? I'll tell you what I've been trying to do for a while. I've been trying to live my life in 12-hour segments because Jesus said each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. He didn't say don't think about tomorrow. He didn't say don't give it thought. He said don't worry. Don't, <laughs> don't stress over the future. Live your life today. Um, when you live your life in 12-hour segments, here's how you do it. It's not that you don't ever think about what's out there. But if you take on all the potential things that you're going to face, and if that doesn't work out, if you take that on, it's going to crush you. So how do you handle a burden? You keep casting upon him who is behind the burden. You keep giving it to him. And you live in the moment, you live in the next 12 hours. Because, let me ask you something. Has God been faithful in the last 12 hours of your life? Has he? Doesn't mean everything was perfect, but has he been faithful to you? Okay, he's going to be the same God in the next 12 hours. And then the next 12 hours after, he's going to be the same God. So see, what you do is you cast what he's given you upon him. Because... He can be trusted, and he is good, and he knows exactly what he's doing. He doesn't do it the way we think. He doesn't do it the way we prescribe. He does it far better than we could ever ask or think or imagine. That's what he does. That's what you do with burdens. You just give it right back to him, and you enjoy what you've been given right now. Does that make sense? That's better than value. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the truth. I pray that you'll encourage us, Lord. 
It's remarkable what we've seen in Lauren's life, and we thank you for it. She has many, many challenges ahead of her, many. It's not going to be a bed of roses for her. She's going to have things coming up that perhaps have not even been considered. But the way to handle them is in 12-hour segments, trusting you for grace. We're not dealing with those issues ourselves. We have other issues, but the formula is the same. We trust you for right now, for the next 12 hours. You're our God. You know what is best. You're in charge. You have a plan from before the foundation of the world. And we thank you there is going to be a day when we will be delivered from all this stuff. That day is coming. This is momentary light affliction. We thank you for the relief that you give us from time to time and the times you break through and bless us beyond our wildest dreams. We've all experienced that. And we thank you for it. But in order to mature, we're going to have hard stuff. You love us too much to let us have an easy life. We'll always be challenged so that we'll always trust you. Keep us teachable. Keep us submissive. It's the safest place to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.